This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm delighted to be here this afternoon with Blake Morrison. I'm Robin Marsak of the Scottish Poetry Library. And I want to thank here uh, The Guardian, who's our sponsor and patron for this event. You can see when Blake reads some of his poems why The Guardian might be particularly interested in them. They're very newsy. Um, I know that a lot of you will love the poetry coverage in The Guardian and be readers of Carol Ruman's weekly Delving Deeply into a Poem. If you don't know that feature online, I recommend it to you. And in the spirit of Guardian engagement, there will be a time for questions after Blake has, has read. Blake Morrison will be known to many of you. I, he was um, a star to me in my uh, early first years thinking about uh, English literature, both with his book on the movement and then, of course, with his groundbreaking anthology with uh, Andrew Motion in 1982, which defined uh, a certain period in English poetry. But he is a poet himself. Uh, he's a memoirist. Some of you will know his books, um, And When Did You Last See Your Father? and Things My Mother Never Told Me. He's also a novelist, and he's a critic. He's all things. Um, and in this book, which is a, actually a wonderful pamphlet, this poem... He's produced a suite of very ingenious and very provocative poems about subjects as varied as Jimmy Savile, the Olympics, carbon emissions and call centres, but also about poetry itself and what it can do. And before I ask you to give him a welcome, I'm just going to quote something that he says at the beginning of this book, which I love. Caution all prose hogs. Poetry's a speed bump. It's there to make you slow down. Enjoy this slowed down hour with Blake Morrison. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you very much, Robin, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, call me naive, but until a year or two ago, I didn't know there was such a thing as bonuses. We've all heard about bankers' bonuses. Um, but it did start me thinking of what about poets and bonuses? Um, of course, what an ideal bonus for a poet would be, as for anybody else, a vast amount of money. But a poem would do, wouldn't it? That would be a real bonus for a poet who's struggling to write just a poem. Anyway, uh, this, this, um, this is bonus, which um, has a little quote at the top from Ovid. Time was when poetic talent came dearer than gold. This poem is my annual bonus. I know, I know, most folks slog away for a modest return with no extras and their works in the public interest, teaching and healing and cleaning and stuff, whereas, but I'm a poet. And who are you to interfere if the powers above choose to reward me? Remember the value of the words I generate and all I contribute to the cultural economy. Be warned. If you deprive us poets of our bonuses, we'll be forced to move and work abroad <laughs> in a different language, and London will lose its place as the poetry hub of the Western world. Is that what you want? No. Thought not. You're just jealous of the cats that get the cream. Go on, admit it. We're worth our bonuses. Every stanza, every line break, every half rhyme. 
When, uh, when, you, when you go to poetry readings, of course, a, a phrase you hear a lot is this poem. The poet says, this poem's about this, this poem's about that. So every poem in this poem, this pamphlet, begins this poem. Um, and the next one I'll read is called Hacking. Again, a subject that's been in the news a lot, phone hacking. Um, it got me thinking about the private and the public, and what about poetry? Poetry is something where a poet often feels to be saying something quite private, quite personal. But it's a public act, isn't it? Once a poem is published, it's, it's public. So, in a playful way, this looks at that issue. This poem has been hacked into. It was meant to be a private conversation, the line made secure with end stops, but someone cracked the code and listened in. I hate to think how it will be read when all I talked about in confidence, the pizza, the piazza, the back row of the plaza, is out there in the open, on the page. It's not my fault the text went viral, but I feel I've betrayed your trust. What kind of world are we living in when poems become public property? In future, I'll keep my texts oblique so that no one can decrypt them or discover what I'm driving at when I speak of the ibis in the rain. Then my hotline to you will be restored and you can love me again as you should. Whoever you are, whatever your name is, these words are intended just for you. Um, you mentioned the Jimmy Savile poem. I've never read this. It's very short. Um, I suppose what I was interested in is how many people said, oh, of course, it was so obvious, wasn't it, about him? We always knew somehow. But did anybody intervene? Did it ever get stopped? His predatory behaviour? No. So there's a lot of retrospective wisdom about Savile. And really this is a poem about, as are one or two others in here, not being able to write the poem you want to write, not being able to write at all on this subject. Um, you may know that the words he had inscribed on his gravestone were, it was good while it lasted, which indeed <coughs> is true in his case. Um, he must, unless you believe in an afterlife, he cannot have known what he left behind and where his reputation stands now. Anyway, here we go, short poem. This poem is Jimmy Savile's gravestone, or was, Given the risk of public outrage and as a gesture of sympathy to his victims, it has been removed from the page. Nor will the exhumation of his body from the concrete encased gold coffin in which it lies at a 45 degree angle facing the sea be documented in this quatrain. Whereof we cannot speak except with prurience, sanctimony or inspired retrospective wisdom Thereof we must not say a word. Um, I, for my sins, have partly work in a university, a goldsmiths, where I teach creative writing. But occasionally um, I get drawn into uh, sitting in the more academic type conference, seminar, whatever. Uh, and this poem is about the feelings that perhaps quite a few of us have, have had in those sort of situations where the language perhaps isn't a language we understand or immediately recognise. This poem is you sitting in a seminar. You would like to join in, 
but know nothing about zones and contestation, problematized binaries, performativity, generative rupturing, or the ideology of transgressive epistemes. Luckily, others in the seminar do know, or talk as if they do, or anyway talk. So you can join the starlings on the telegraph wire, ride that pushchair with the sleeping toddler, hide in the blouse of the woman at the bus stop. Just make sure to be awake before the end. Nod, applaud, wrap your knuckles on the table as if you've been enlightened and inspired. And when you leave, we'll see the world afresh, no longer baffled by its hermeneutics. <laughs> A word I find extremely difficult to pronounce. Um, um, some of, I guess the majority of these poems in this uh, little pamphlet are, are topical, satirical, light. This one's particularly light. It's called Call Centre. This poem is an automated response system. To activate it, please slowly speak your name. I'm sorry, but your personality has not been recognised. <laughs> Please wait while I transfer you to one of our inoperatives. Your call is extremely important to us. Please take a moment to enjoy the silence. As a valued customer, we'd like to offer you a special offer open only to new customers. We are experiencing an unusual volume. Please keep your voice down. You now have three options. Death from boredom, death from apoplexy, death by suicide. Thank you. Your complaint has been referred to our satisfaction unit, where it will be answered with due coarseness. <laughs> um, <thank you. laughs> um, one or two, two of these poems are a bit more personal, anecdotal, biographical. Uh, this is one about my um, frustrated athletics career. It's called Spikes. This poem is the nearest I came to a medal. The 800 metres at senior school. Two laps of the top field. Grass, not asphalt. Six lanes marked out. The lime still shiny wet. Gunby up ahead, uncatchable as ever. Three of us abreast on the last bend, fighting for silver. I'm in the middle, holding my own. When Lord veers across driving me out a lane into Proctor. I stumble, but keep going for the line, which we cross together before collapsing in a heap. Nothing between us. Then I see blood. There are thin red gashes down my thigh from where I landed behind the others. Did no one see what happened? How I was barged? Bastards, fourth, no medal. It's only then I feel the spikes, the rake of metal leaving lanes like the ones we battled between, except these are marked out in blood. There are a million worse injustices every day. But that was mine then, and it still lives with me. Coalition. We live under a coalition government. Um, the, some of the poems in here try to make connections between the world of poetry and the world of politics, the public world, the world out there. Um, I suppose poets are in 
a coalition with their muses. So that's what this poem is kind of about, as well as Cameron and Clegg. This poem is a coalition effort. As we say at every press conference, the muse and I make a great team. Between us, we've got everything. Order, inspiration, reason, feeling, left side, right side, etc. Off the record, though, she's a nightmare to work with. Fails to show when I schedule meetings, then barges in when I'm least expecting it. And if I remind her who's boss, tells me I'd be lost without her. New opinion polls suggest the public have lost faith in us. I should hang up my laurel wreath, they say, while my muse moves on to someone more dynamic, a performance poet, say. <laughs> we need to sit down together and come up with a war epic to restore national pride, or our union will dissolve in bitterness and name-calling and a congruence of tears. One or two of the poems are just really just an image, and here's a little poem called Lent. This poem is for Lent. Uncluttered as a freshly cleared draining board, no one talking and no food on the table, just the cut-off stalk ends of a daffodil. I'm going to be really new tech now and use this iPad to read a poem because it isn't in a pamphlet, this poem. But it, is, it does begin with the words, this poem. I think it's, it's a presumption for anyone who's not been in a war to write about war. I hesitate to write about war for that reason. But um, a few years ago, uh, a friend of my son, someone who had been at school with my son, was, was killed in Afghanistan. Uh, within three weeks of his arrival. And um, his mother published a little book about her search to find the truth of what happened to him. Because in, in the early stages of her trying to find out, she found that the documents that she was sent by the Ministry of Defence, the MOD, had been redacted in certain places. So it was very difficult for her to make sense of it. So this poem is called Redacted. Um, of course, it's a bit difficult for me to indicate redacting. You can see it on the page, blacked out letters where there would be words. Um, so I'll do that. Whatever there's a bit of redacting, I'll be doing this. Change of mood, I think. It's a bit long, too, I should say. This poem has been redacted in the interests of national security. It's an inquest into the death of a serving officer heard at a coroner's court for the MOD. On May the 9th, 2000, Lieutenant who had begun his first posting at Fort just 12 days earlier, undertook a routine patrol with members of his platoon, including two guardsmen and an interpreter. It was the aftermath of the poppy harvest, and their instructions were to dominate the area of Helmand by repelling Taliban insurgents and winning local hearts and minds. Five minutes after leaving base, they came under fire and took cover in a compound behind a high mud wall where Lieutenant tried to radio for reinforcements, briefly standing at the entrance doorway to get a signal, which was when the bullet hit, finding the gap between his body armour and his collarbone. 
and knocking him flat on the sandy ground. Man down, his colleague shouted. Man down. Guardsman radioed for a helicopter while guardsman, the team medic, wiped the blood from the hole in his right shoulder the size of a 50p coin, staunching the flow with a field dressing as best he could. Still under fire, Lieutenant was placed on a stretcher and carried through irrigation ditches back to base. The ride was bumpy, but he kept talking as he lay there and even asked for and was given a cigarette. While awaiting the arrival of the helicopter team, he was injected with morphine in his right thigh and a hempcom bandage applied to the wound, but his pulse was slowing. The bullet had ruptured an artery. The Black Cup the Black Hawk helicopter arrived 40 minutes later. During the flight, Lieutenant suffered a cardiac arrest and though operated on hospital and camp, he failed to recover consciousness. Further tests at hospital in the UK following his transfer by plane confirmed the absence of brain activity. Parents and friends spent time at his bedside before the life support machine was turned off next day. This poem's sympathies are with the family for their loss, but it is satisfied that everything possible was done to save the life of Lieutenant, and it therefore refutes any suggestion that his body armour offered scant protection, that his Bowman radio did not work properly, that the medical equipment supplied to the troops was inadequate, and that the 65-minute delay between the bullet hitting and the helicopter landing, the product of a communication failure or of a navigation error on the part of the pilot, was what cost Lieutenant his life. Nor can this poem judge whether the deployment as, whether his deployment as platoon commander on his first tour of duty in an area notorious for insurgents and snipers was negligent to the point of criminality. As to claims that the war in Afghanistan is unwinnable, that young soldiers are being used as cannon fodder and that their deaths serve no purpose whatsoever, to comment would be inappropriate. In short, after hearing all the evidence, the poem concludes that Lieutenant suffered injuries that were regrettable but unsurvivable while on active service for his country, his death being the result of 1A, necrosis of the brain due to 1B, major blood loss due to 1C, a gunshot wound. Signed, Coroner, acting independently for the MOD. I've spent a bit of time in recent years on the, uh, well, quite a few years now, on the <coughs> east coast of England, where one is really struck, and it may be true here too, by the extent of coastal erosion. Uh, and this is a little poem set in a place called Cove Hive. The tides go in and out, but the cliffs are stuck in reverse. Back across the fields they creep, back to the graves of Cove Hythe Church. From church to beach was once a hike. Today, it's just a stroll. Soon, it'll be a stone's throw. And that path we took along the cliffs has itself been taken by winter storms. The wheat's living on the edge. What's to be done? I blame the dead in their grassy mounds 
the sailors and fishermen longing to be back at sea, who since they can't get up and stride down to the beach, entice the sea to come to them. Um, just along the coast from um, Kofi, there's a place called Dunwich, famous because it was in medieval times, there were, I don't know, 23 churches all since fallen into the sea um, over the years. Um, but this is not about erosion, it's about something I observed. In the cafe on Dunwich Beach, I saw a woman buy a 99 and give her spaniel first lick. Its tongue neatly curling to detach the twirly flourish at the tip and resisting even a nibble of the serrated chocolate flake poking sideways from the middle. Her trust rewarded. She then tucked in and beseechingly though the pooch stared and slavered from her lap, the woman wouldn't let up till every last mouthful was gone. Even the blonde, hollow butt-end of cone. I'm sorry if there are any dog lovers here who <laughs> regularly give their food to their animals and then eat the rest. <coughs> um, I'm going to read another poem set on that coast, which is an older poem uh, set at another place on the east coast called um, Sizewell Beach. Sizewell famous for uh, having a power station. Um, they've, they've got A and B and they're proposing to build C. And I, at the time of this poem, written many years ago now, I was kind of interested in, well, nuclear power and potential dangers, of course, of <clears throat> having such a place on the coast. But I got sidetracked, as the poem explains. On Sizewell Beach, there are four beach huts numbered 13 to 16, each with neck curtains and a lock. Who owns them? What happened to the first 12? Whether there are plans for further building, there's no one here today to help with such inquiries. The cafe closed up for the winter. No cars or buses in the pay and display. I've heard the rumours that it's warmer here for bathing than at any other point along the coast. Who started them? The same joker who bought the village pub and named it the Vulcan, god of fire and metalwork and hammers. Whoever he is, whatever he was up to, he'd be doused today, like these men out back shooting at clay pigeons, the rain in their adnum's beer. And now a movement on the shingle that's more than the scissoring of turns. A fishing boat's landed, Three men in yellow waders guiding it shorewards over metal-ribbed slats, which they lay in front of it like offerings, while the winch in its hut tents and oily hauls at the hook and the prow, the smack with its catch itself become a catch. Though when I lift the children up to see the lock jaws of sole and whiting, there's nothing in there but oilskin and rope. <clears throat> I love this place. It's going on with life in the shadow of the slab behind it, which you almost forget or might take for a giant's Lego set. So neat are the pipes and the chainmail fences, the dinky railway track running off to Layston, the pylons like a line of cross-country skiers, 
the cooling ponds and turbine halls and reactor control rooms where they prove with geigers on open days that sealed uranium is less radioactive than a watch. <clears throat> One rain-glossed Saturday in April, a lad from Halesworth, having passed his test and wanting to impress his girlfriend, came here in the Ford he'd borrowed from his father and took the corner much too fast, too green to judge the danger, or simply not seeing the child left on the pavement by the father, no less reckless, who would cross back to his Renault for the notebook he'd stupidly forgotten, the one with jottings for a poem about nuclear catastrophe, a poem later abandoned, in place of which he'd write of the shock of turning round to find a car had come between him and his daughter. An eternity of bodywork blotting out the view, a cloud or an eclipse which hangs before the eyes and darkens all behind them, clearing at last to the joy of finding her still standing there. The three of us spared that other life we dream of, where the worst has already happened, and we are made to dwell forever on its shore. Thank you. <clears throat> Partly read that to embarrass my daughter who's in the audience, and who is living testimony to that escape. Somebody was asking me the problem with doing these topical poems, as in this poem, uh, don't need dates, and of course that's always a worry, but then you find even things you didn't think would date, date. I wrote a poem some years ago called Flood, which was about the possibility of the Thames flooding its banks and of London living with this tremendous sort of catastrophe of being flooded. Um, and I remember people at the time um, talking with a mixture of horror and excitement at this prospect, and it was that paradox that this poem tries to explore. They then built the Thames barrier, and now supposedly the Thames can't flood, though it does flood in other, other parts, not central London. We live in the promise of miraculous lakes, Dagenham, Greenwich, Wapping, the Isle of Dogs. When the siren sounds, those in the blue environs should proceed immediately to non-risk zones. Spring tides, high winds, for days, we can hear of nothing else. Our eyes bright with disaster. Our dreams are chronicle of mounting anarchy. The river folk frantic, ships trapped in trees. And the dove we sent out, when it came back, had the brown glaze of estuaries on its beak. In our dreams, no sandbags hold back the flood. We would bring the whole world down, if we could. don't know whether any of you in the audience are familiar with a, a drink called pomaine. Uh, does it still exist? I think it might. It's, the point was, it was a very cheap drink, perhaps it still is. Um, <clears throat> so when you had one of those parties as teenagers where the parents went out for the evening, you suddenly assembled friends um, and come on, round to our place party. Um, 
the thing that you bought was a bottle of pomaine because it gave you the illusion of the high life. So this is a commemoration of that stage of life, adolescence and so on. Pomaine. Be careful not to spill it when it pops. He'd bloody crucify me if he caught us. We had taken months to get to this. Our first kiss, a meeting of stalagmite and stalactite. The slow drip of courtship. Her friend June interceding with letters. The intimate struggle each Friday under the plaza's girder of light. But here we were at last, drinking pomaine in her parents' double bed. Christmas Eve and the last advent calendar door. Did you hear the gate click? No, did you? <laughs> um, okay. Um, just, I think, should stop relatively soon. Five minutes, maybe? Um, another poem bit in that spirit called Shirt. And afterwards, she wants to wear your shirt for the smell of you recorded in the cotton or because what's yours is hers now. She struts about, pretending to be you, or showing how stylish you look when a pretty girl is modelling you. Does it suit me, she asks, climbing back into bed and kissing you, still with the shirt on, which is disconcerting, like kissing yourself, <laughs> except that the shirt has grown breasts and the sleeves meet behind your back. And in the mirror, two people are fighting to wear one shirt. Impossible when both are horizontal. And yet somehow, between you, you fit. Um, I'll, I'll finish off with a poem for each of my parents. Um, de long dead now. Uh, this one's called The Dressing Gown. My dad's dressing gown. Twenty years on, your dressing gown hangs from the bedroom door, waiting to come back in fashion. Short, thin, with mauve and blue stripes, it was more for the beach than round the house. A thing you'd drop in a heap as you ran into the sea, then towel yourself dry with afterwards, stretching the collar tight, like a loofah to rub that itch you couldn't get at in the middle of your back. I took it with your other things, the shoes, shirts, blazer with brass buttons, all since discarded, unworn. For months it smelled of talc, or engine oil, or maybe the sea, of you anyway. Now it's mustier, the colours fading, the posture too slack for you. Nothing in the pockets but fluff. I should take it to the dump. But first I try it on, feeling it settle round me, like skin I've slipped inside. And when I look, there's you in the mirror, serious, head tilted, sizing things up. Perfect fit. Um, I'll finish with... Um, Gisborne Park, which is a poem 
Um, for my mother. She, my mother, towards the end of her life, had a spell in a convalescent nursing home called Gisborne Park. Uh, this uh, place had once been a private house, which she had gone to once a year for an, an annual dance. And I could remember uh, being stuck with a babysitter, not wanting her to go out and leave, leave us and so on. Um, she came back to this same place in its new incarnation many years after that, and that's what the poem's about, I guess. The thin-ribbed pillars in the entrance hall are the ones you came through for the hunt ball. Beyond reception and the waiting wheelchairs was where you drank champagne by marble sculptures, or at the long white table helped yourself to salmon, Aylesbury duckling, or roast beef. The talk was horsey, point to point, livery, who was riding who. You shut up and ate the puree, knowing after port and coffee you'd pass out into the floodlit garden to waltz and foxtrot where a band played in a sagging striped marquee. Today, there's just a lawn, six hoops in it for croquet, rusting now, as if the spirit had slipped through them of the place and the era, and of you. But the floor upstairs, where you queued in fifties dresses for the ladies, is crowded still, with nurses at their stations to direct me to the room where you lie, worn and name-tagged, like a pilgrim at journey's end. I hold your hand as I held it then, seeing you dressed and powdered to go out. A child beside myself, unable to stop again and again, pleading for you to stay. And again, now, despite myself, by your bed, pleading the same. Thank you very much. I said there was an opportunity to ask questions. There'll be somebody with a roving mic, um, fleetly footing it around here. Um, if you would like to ask a question, put your hand up and they'll come to you, but wait till they do so people can hear you. Is there anybody who would like to ask a question? There's a gentleman in the front here. Thank you. Thank you. It's an obvious question, but which poet do you most enjoy reading? Uh, Larkin, Philip Larkin. Sorry, easy answer. <laughs> well, I think he's a great poet. Um, one of the great poets of the 20th century, and um, perhaps that's not been sufficiently recognised. I mean, why? Because he's so quotable. I mean, how many other poets can you think of uh, where there are so many good lines? Um, and I think he's a... Well, you know, in the early days, people saw him as a minor poet, small, provincial, too English... Uh, to take seriously and compare with Eliot and Pound and so on, but I think he's a, one of the great poets. There's a lady in front here. I've read your biographies, I've read your biographies of your mother and father, and um, evidently you didn't know much about your mother's background. No. You found a cache of letters and a plait of her hair and so on. Did you become fully acquainted with your mother's family after her death? Are you still in touch with 
Yes, uh, my, uh, my mother was Irish um, and she came from Ireland to train, well she trained in Dublin and she came to work in England and when she came she pretty much left Ireland behind. Um, so I, we had one family holiday in all my years of, of being a child in, in Ireland. She, she didn't want us to be part of that. and um, so. She was um, pretty quiet about her family background, and it was only after her death, as you'll know, you read the book, that I discovered that she had been the 19th child of 20, for example. You know, that's a pretty big thing not to know about your own mother, isn't it? But there was something that, for various reasons, and that's what the book's about, she, she didn't want to talk about, and um, in marrying my father, she renounced her name, not just a surname, O'Shea, but her Christian name, Agnes, gave them both up for my father. She gave up her accent, she gave up her religion, Catholicism, um, to reinvent herself as an English country doctor. And a lot of that I only discovered after her death because I read the letters that my father had kept that they exchanged during their courtship. And I felt very lucky to, you know, to read about a time before you were born when your parents first were in love, I suppose, is... It's, you feel very privileged to, to know about that time because most of us don't. Um, and as a result of um, trying to find out more about the past, yeah, I, I went to her birthplace. Um, I, I now have lots of Irish cousins. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, I'm, I'm more in touch with them than, than, than I had been. Yeah. Can I just ask you a question about privacy? Because you talk about it in that poem about hacking, you know, yeah. so here you are talking about your mother, things that she didn't, well, she didn't tell you, but maybe she didn't <coughs> want you to know about, but that you've made public, or things about your father, um, and things in the poetry, obviously, even the small detail of your, your daughter's narrow escape. And I think people are always very curious about how much, perhaps poets in particular, but also memoirists, and you're teaching, I think, life writing, um, how much they're entitled to use or how comfortable or uncomfortable that is. Mm. Like yeah, say. I mean, and it's becoming a really controversial area, I think. Uh, universities are setting up ethics committees and um, I wonder whether my book now would, would, would the one about my father, whether it would be quite so easy um, to publish. Not that I feel, I don't feel either book was a betrayal of my parents. I like to think it was a way of keeping them alive and, and of telling their stories in a respectful way. Uh, yeah, my mother was, it's true, she was fairly private, but I felt she sacrificed too much. She was ashamed of things that you didn't need to be ashamed of, and, and, and I felt it was worth telling that story. Um, I suppose it's true that her death uh, was permission, just as my father's death for me was permission to write things about them that perhaps in their lifetime I wouldn't have written. Uh, is that unethical? I don't know. But I, I like to think that both books honour my parents. That you know, I'm not settling scores. I'm, um, I'm revealing here and there things that they might have been uncomfortable about being revealed. But mostly, I'm telling stories that they told about themselves. Certainly, my father's case. You know, the, um, many of the stories in my book about my father were ones we used to tell as a family yes. to each other. Remember yeah. that time that happened or that happened, and so yeah. on. And the and the the use of um, 
the use of private details in poetry. There's a famous occasion where um, Robert Lowell used uh, letters from his estranged wife and later divorced wife in un, uncut in, in a poem, mm. and Elizabeth Bishop said to him, well, this, this time you've gone too far. Yeah. Is there a kind of line that you would draw in well, that? Well, there is a line. I mean, that, that's a good example, isn't it? I mean, um, his wife was alive, divorced, yes. but alive. They were her letters yes. to him that he was using. Uh, I think both those things you could say are crossing lines that shouldn't be crossed. Um, but there will always be poets and memoirists and novelists who feel pretty tough-minded about this, you know, splinter of ice in the heart and so on. Everything is material. Um, uh, I, to me, the issue is... Um, you know, can you live with those people who are still alive? Um, I couldn't have... I had to show my mother the book about my dad, I mean, the, 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 the typescript, mm. and get her approval before um, I could publish it. I didn't, I didn't want to fall... It wasn't worth publishing it. The, the cost of upsetting her profoundly by publishing this book wouldn't have been worth it. Luckily... Maybe she was indulging her only son, I don't know, but she, she didn't seriously object to things that I'd been worried would upset her. The intimate details about my father's uh, illness and death, for instance, she as a doctor did not find that particularly difficult to read. Um, she said there are two things I don't particularly like. One is you've mentioned that I'm a Catholic. I've never told anybody around here that, she said. So, of course, that became in a way, that why I had to write a book about her. Why was that such a big deal? Um, and the other thing was, of course, Auntie Beattie, mm. who was not an auntie, mm. the other woman in, in, in the, <coughs> whose presence sort of dominated or, or overshadowed some of my childhood and certainly some of my mother's middle years. Um, my mother said, you know, I'm not really keen on... Even though I changed the name, disguised so much, um, you were having that. But hey, well, okay, if it's your story and it meant so much, put it in. And I'll just tell all my friends you made it up and it's fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how she dealt with it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, am I seeing any more hands up? So did I see somebody at the back? No. Okay. You'll have to keep going, Robin. That's very good. <laughs> I hope you don't mind if I keep going then. Um, and, and could I just go back to Larkin for a second there? Because I know that um, a lot of people who loved his poetry were, were nevertheless very disconcerted when Andrew Motion's biography came out and then even more so when the letters came out. And do you think that separating the life and the work is the way round that? Or how, how did you feel well, yourself when you read those things? Funnily enough, I've, I've written today in the Guardian. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, but this, of course, I mentioned this because this is a Guardian yes, event, isn't it? So. Uh, there's a new biography of Larkin by a oh. man called James Booth, which is in a way written as a corrective to Andrew Motion, whose his line is, "People who knew Larkin in Hull thought he was a lovely boss, a really nice man, likable, and so on, and all this stuff about him." being a racist and a misogynist and so on is they don't recognize this man um so this is a an attempt to answer under motion in a way um but i think the trouble is you know there was there was a very troubled mad genius part of larkin and um that this in in sort of tidying him up and presenting him as this 
lovely, knifeable chap as, as this biography does. You're, you're missing something of what he is. Um, I personally, I'd, I mean, I didn't find that Andrew Motion's biography, although it came as a complete surprise, many of the things that were revealed in it about Larkin having three girlfriends at once and playing them off against each other, for example. I didn't find that I thought any less of the poems as a result of finding out about the man. Um, so I suppose the answer is probably I do separate the work and the person. Um, thinking more about uh, writing public poetry, and you mentioned the difficulties of writing about anything <coughs> about war not having been in it. And of course one of Larkin's very great poems, I think, is, is 1914, the Never Such Innocence poem. It's a yeah. wonderful poem. Um, but he's talking about people recruit, being recruited. Um, but there are public things that... But you nevertheless felt impelled to write that poem. Was that because of personal connections or because you felt at some stage, and I think you've referred to this in interviews, that you felt that you've had a kind of confidence built up in you to to approach public subjects by reading people such as uh, Seamus Heaney or Tony Harrison and that they've shown or given examples of how a poet might tackle these larger issues of mm, yeah. public life. I don't know about confidence. Don't always feel that. Most poets don't feel confident. But, yeah, I think that Tony Harrison, um, terrific poet, Seamus Heaney, um, who, for example, in North, you know, the... the, the takes on history, writes very public poems. Um, I think poets can intervene socially, politically, can, can, can address issues that we've all read about in the news and try and find a new language for them or new insights, provide new insights. Um, I would say a lot of what I've been, have written has, has been an attempt to do that. I mean, I have worked on newspapers and perhaps I have a particular interest in why in subjects that journalists have dealt with and seeing if, in, if you like, in literature or in other ways you can go back and, 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 and open up the subject again. So the book about my father, although it's a memoir, it's a very personal book, there's a sort of agenda which is can't we look honestly at, at what death is, at the process of dying and death, can't we, you know, which we tend to shut away behind screens. My father was a great one for saying... Um, you know, from his experience as a doctor, that, that death wasn't anything to be frightened of. Yeah, avoid it as long as possible, but don't be don't be terrified of it. And with that in mind, he took me at the age of eight to look at my grandfather lying dead in a coffin. Right. Perhaps not a thing to be recommended generally, but I could understand why my father did that. And that, I think, I wrote my book about him in that spirit of well, let's look honestly at this book about. The Bolger case was a, was a way of um, seeing whether these two demonised ten-year-olds, whether there wasn't more to say about that case. You know, weren't there actually a whole host of reasons why those two boys did what they did, <coughs> and um, how responsible do should we hold children of ten for their actions? Should we parade them in a public court in front of the world's press in the way that happened with those two. Uh, wrote a long poem about Peter Sutcliffe, yeah. uh, The Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper, which is a way of looking at that case in terms of his deep-rooted misogyny, the fam you know, how he'd been brought up in a family where there was this you know, demonising of women 
and how far that played into the murders he committed. So, but doing it in, in, in a poem and in a different kind of language. So, so I think it's one of the things that poetry can do and, and prose writing can do. It's not the only thing. You want to entertain people and so on, but you also want to make them think and sometimes make them think again. Mm-hmm. And you can even go back and, hist- I mean, and look at historical events as you've done with your poem about the witches, uh, discovery of witches, uh, to talk about the past and, and reconsider that as well. Um, yeah, I grew up um, very near to Pendle Hill <clears throat> and the Pendle area just over the border of Yorkshire into Lancashire where in uh, <clears throat> Uh, uh, 1612, um, 400 years, just over 400 years ago, uh, 10 witches, 10 alleged witches, eight women, two men were, were hanged. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the, the reason was, was kind of malicious gossip, um, neighborly disputes. They were demonized, they were sent off to Lancaster jail, they languished there for a bit, then they were put on trial. The trial was over within a day. And um, I think, well, sadly, you know, accusations of witchcraft, not least against children, uh, continue in certain parts of this world today. So what was, yes, a historic, you know, I wrote a set of poems around the Pendle history, but I didn't feel I was dealing with a dead subject, actually. Mm. Yeah. And the difference, of course, when you write a poem is the difference in language and what you can do in terms of compression and metaphor and simile and how you work it. And one of the one of the reasons I find this book very interesting is because it's also about the writing of poetry um, and how it copes with all sorts of subjects. Um, there's an incredible double acrostic sonnet there that you did for the Olympic or after the Olympic Games. So it's a kind of a sense of... Um, just trying for that boundary and leaping over, if you like. Um, there's something also you say about... There's, there's a po- poem called The Director's Cut, and those of you who love cinema will be acquainted with the idea of seeing the shorter and the longer form of a f- film. And I was just saying to Blake beforehand, it's funny, isn't it, that we, ne- we don't see the writer's cut or the poet's cut. I mean, we never see... Uh, you know, the longer and shorter version of a poem. Do you scrape away a great deal to get to this? You know? no, I scrape away. I think most poets scrape away and cut away. Um, and, you know, uh, universities have collected uh, manuscripts and, and, and there are ways of studying how poems evolve and through successive drafts. There have been. I mean, I think this is going to fade. I mean, do poets yes. now keep their different drafts. Uh, Um, Some might with an eye on posterity and the sales to libraries, but I suspect a a lot of them just, you know, there's the final thing and you've done it all on... I I know poets, and I include myself as a question there, who who, um, write straight straight onto a screen, a laptop, uh, an iPad, whatever, uh, now. So there isn't the notebook tradition in the same way that there used to be. Did I see a question? There's a gentleman at the back there. Thank you. Sorry to break in. No. Um, no. You mentioned Pendle Hill. Uh, Scott wrote about the influence of his environment on a poetic child. Were you a poetic child, and uh, what turned you on to uh, to writing poetry? 
I don't think I was a particularly poetic child. I certainly didn't have a sense of destiny. This is what I've got to be a poet. Um, oh, this little talented genius, um, you know, that was not top of the class or, you know, etc., etc. Um, I started writing poetry as a teenager um, in that sort of moony adolescent way of self pity. The world doesn't understand me, parents are horrible. Uh, that, those were the first poems, and then one or two was, were one or two were actually more social and political. I remember writing one about there was a spate of um, children, uh, girls particularly, going up in flames in their night dresses, um, and I wrote the poem about that, uh, which was my first experience of censorship. Actually, um, it was going to go in the school magazine, but I, I had a reference to the, the, this night, the offending night dress having been bought in Woolworths, and. Um, the, uh, the, the teacher, the editor of the magazine, said, we better change. Well, we don't want a legal action from Woolworths. So I had to change it to bought in the market that day. Um, um, but, um, you know, it was in my 20s before I uh, really got going as a poet. Um, I think on the question of place and environment, I th the, where I grew up uh, on the Lancashire Yorkshire border with, if you like, industry one way and the Yorkshire Dales the other has had a profound effect and those are the landscapes are ones I carry in my head to this day even though I've lived in London for 30 years um, so I think place is, is, is really important yeah. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw to an end um, this very enjoyable hour um, I, Blake is going to conclude with a poem because it's good to go out with a poem in your ears rather than prose. I'm just going to say thank you to him on your behalf. The, if I could quote back to him his own poem, but in an entirely positive way, um, I know you're going to applaud and wrap your knuckles on the table <laughs> as, if, as if indeed you've been enlightened and inspired. And when you leave, you will see the world afresh no longer baffled by its hermeneutics. I think that will have been our experience this afternoon. So thank you very much indeed, Blake. Okay, thank you. Well, I'll, I'll stand just to read this. Um, um, thank you. Um, appropriate to end with this. It's called Exit Interview. Just like I didn't know about bankers' bonuses, I didn't know about exit interviews till recently, um, which happened. But, of course, I was interested in the idea of the exit aspect. Um, after this poem was published in The Guardian, who we're promoting today, um, I had a couple of anguished emails. You're not leaving your job, are you? And, uh, uh, they kind of missed the deeper metaphorical element to the poem, I think. Exit interview. This poem is my exit interview. I'm giving HR my reasons for leaving. They sit there like psychiatrists taking notes. I was happy to begin with, I tell them. No new arrival could have asked for more. Kindly mentors to help me find my feet. Sleepy afternoons in the sunlit atrium. A screen and keyboard to disseminate my work. Records will show I made good progress, hit it off with colleagues and line managers, and met the targets I was paid to meet. What's changed then? No gripe about money or status, just a feeling I've accomplished all I can. Oh, I know where I'm off to isn't rated. That no good word has ever been said of it. But think of the perks. No stress, no deadlines, no gossip by the water cooler, 
No sick building syndrome. No team building away days. No commuter gridlock. No voicemail. Nothing at all forever and ever. An unbeatable package, I tell them, slamming the door behind me as I go. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.